Chapter Fifteen of Miss Frances Baird, Detective, by Reginald Wright Kaufman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thou art the man. That interview, which I at once ended by a precipitate retreat, about finished me. It seemed to show that I was not cut out for murder cases. They are the thing that every good detective delights in. They are for him what the mitre is for the priest and the bench for the lawyer but for me they appeared to be too strenuous, altogether too strenuous. They packed too much emotion into too short a space. They were bad art. I was now just altogether distracted. On the one hand, here was an old father, appealing to my human as well as my professional instincts, for I had to set down that change of expression that had so shocked me to either my own fancy or his delirium, that I should avenge the murder of his son and on the other hand here was i in spite of my recent jealousy and anger in love with the man whom every shred of evidence declared to be the assassin i resolved camp or no camp to take the matter into my own two hands feeble as they were and have the thing over with i did not stop to weigh the ethics of my action i refused to consider my pledge with my fellow detective i recalled only that fredericks had gone back with evelyn and so I just walked down to the gate of the Maples and waited for his return. The shadows were already beginning to lengthen, and I was not kept waiting long. Very soon I heard his step on the road, and then, in the twilight, he swung into view. "'Hello, Miss Baird,' he called from ten yards away. "'Quite recovered from the shake-up? I'm afraid I was a bit clumsy about it all.' He was splendid there, as he came to a stop before me, and lifting his cap from those blonde curls of his, showed the little bandage that he wore almost as my token. I noticed the shadow of one of the country detectives across the road, who, seeing and recognizing me in turn, went on his way, leaving the suspect in my care. "'You were very brave at any rate, Mr. Fredericks,' I answered, "'and I know that I owe my life to you.' "'Nonsense,' said he merrily. "'Fact,' I soberly insisted, "'and that is why I am here with a very important thing to tell you.' can you spare me ten minutes he grew grave at once as many as you like he said any news have you found the thief we are looking mr fredericks not only for a thief oh then you've got the diamonds and not only for the diamonds then my dear young lady what prey are you looking for i watched him hard we are looking i said slowly for the man who killed james Deneen. He gave a start which, mean what it might, was, in all conscience, genuine enough. "'What?' he cried. "'You don't mean to tell me. Oh, but that little Kemp chap said you found the key inside the room.' "'In our business, Mr. Fredericks, it is sometimes necessary, in talking to certain persons, that we should suppress a portion of the truth.' "'Then who in God's name killed the boy?' My climax was at hand, but although I remembered my revolver, I somehow did not draw it. I only leaned across the small gate, there beside the big one that shut off the driveway from the public road, and laid both my hands lightly on his arms. That, said I, is what I am here to ask you. Now I have never yet seen a criminal who would not have jumped when those words from a detective, even a woman detective, were emphasized by the detective's touch. But Fredericks never moved a muscle. Instead, he looked at me apparently quite puzzled. But how? he asked. Should I know? There was that in his face that I couldn't resist a moment longer. 
we had played out our game and he had won oh i broke out the sobs nearly choking me can't you see man can't you see you've saved my life and i can't let you go blindfolded into the trap it's you they're after you 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 he drew away at that but quietly almost gently then he passed a hand over his face and i heard him vaguely murmur to himself a moment later and he turned again toward me drawn up to his full height and speaking proudly and without fear and you miss baird for you seem to be quite the cleverest of the gang do you may i ask adhere to this sage theory again i looked at him drinking in all the handsome manliness of his face all the honesty of his soul after all i was a woman before i was a detective facts are convincing enough when they stand alone but they are nothing when they are confronted by feminine conviction to the contrary and so no said i you are not merely suppressing a portion of the truth in talking to a certain person haven't i come here to warn you that made him blush with a touch of shame i beg your pardon he apologized and miss baird i want to shake hands with you i am beginning to perceive that you will make a good ally and that i am rapidly approaching a position where allies may be few and useful he gave my hand a good square hearty grip but though i could have lingered over it there was now no time to be lost in sentiment yes i hurried to explain that's the point you will need allies that's what you don't yet realize and what you must realize if you hope to save yourself to save myself there is no question of saving myself miss baird i am innocent i gave a gesture of despair oh don't talk that way i cried you'll ruin your case if you just take that attitude innocence hasn't anything to do with it the thing that we must do is to show that somebody else is guilty indeed i am learning something of a new business it had always been my impression that the law presumed a man innocent until he was proven guilty the law perhaps in theory but not the detective in fact at least you must be ready to satisfy these men that you did not take those diamonds and that you did not kill young denneen how pray do they think that i went about it now that's more like business they think you took but i forgot i must tell you first that there were two thefts two i don't think i quite understand at first we found that the real diamonds had been taken and replaced by a clever imitation in paste that disappeared while we were downstairs telling mr denneen of the first theft he bent suddenly forward an imitation in paste he repeated yes why do you ask instinctively i was again alert watching him narrowly but he paused only a moment and though i had thought that he looked disquieted by my information he rapidly pressed me to go on i asked because oh because i begin to see that this may really be a a very complex matter it is well they think you first took the real diamonds and put the false ones in their place that you were then called into young denneen's room and accused by him of the theft that you killed him and that then fearing at the last moment that the false diamonds might be traced to you you went back and took them too oh i am short-sighted am i among my other faults all criminals are and you must remember that you are supposed to be a criminal they think you next climbed over the roof re-entered the house by a downstairs window went to the cellar and burned the shirt and waistcoat that had blood on them and last of all went out and hid the real diamonds somewhere or other on the grounds and the imitations i suppose with them and how do they expect to prove all this they have to prove enough only to convince a district attorney 
who is paid by the indictment and not by the year. Besides, once you get that far, the rest is easy going. I see. But what evidence have they thus far? To speak frankly, enough, to my mind, to warrant your immediate arrest. He looked at me blankly, and I, trying now to cover over my own part in the investigation, hurried on. You were overheard pleading with, with Miss Bladesdell last night to marry you. You were overheard to assert that you needed money, and that the diamonds could be easily stolen. She was overheard to remark that she would marry you if you were well-to-do. That much can be proved by calling Miss Bladesdell to the stand. Good heavens! But they wouldn't drag her into this. They would drag anybody or anything into it that would help their case. Of course, if they didn't need her testimony, they mightn't, but— They would let her alone, you mean, if they could convict without her aid? Yes, but for no other consideration. He wet his lips. All right, he said thickly. So much for the motive, I pursued, and it can all be substantiated by letters from a Mr. Jordan and from others of Miss Bladesdell that were found in your rooms in New York this morning. The scoundrels! You don't mean to say they took her letters! I nodded, thankful for the twilight that now hid my face from him. Next, I went on, for the commission of the crimes. You were known to be on the second floor at the time the first theft occurred. I was in my room. I went there at once. But nobody saw you. You can't prove it. Then you are known to have had made, in New Haven, on the second of last May, by a man named J. W. Gottschalk, a set of imitation diamonds, modeled after the Deneen jewels. That's true enough. Jimmy wanted me to wear the real ones in the play. He thought it a great joke on the old man, who always kept them so close. But I was afraid to flash the things around like that, and so we had a set of paste ones made, for a pretty figure. And Jimmy himself paid for them, when he'd come to his senses about the matter. I remember that even they cost a small fortune. Did he pay in person? No, he insisted on my taking the money. He was afraid his father would hear of it, and as I had no money of my own, and the fault was his, I did it. Then how are you going to substantiate your word in that particular? There was a long pause, during which Frederick seemed to be thinking deeply. Apparently he was beginning to see that things were really serious. Just what his cogitations were I couldn't, of course, tell, but he finally came out with, I don't know that I'd better say anything about those paste diamonds just now. Go on. Well, then it is supposed that you carried the real jewels to your room, and were just waiting for the coast to clear before you hid them, when young Deneen was told of the robbery and substitution. He knew that you were close by, and that you had once owned a set of paste jewels like that which he now saw. But, began Fredericks, and then stopped short. But what? I asked. Never mind, he said. Go ahead. It is argued that he must have gone to his room, and there begun to write you a note informing you of his suspicions, for we found one there, beginning, Dear Larry, I am sorry, but— That, said Fredericks, is the only point, almost, that you have yet produced, of which I am ashamed. You have probably been told by your colleagues that I wanted ten thousand dollars for an important investment. I am sorry to say that, unable to raise the money in any other quarter, I had last evening gone for it to the man who would be most hurt were I to raise it. He said he'd think it over. He went to his room between a couple of dances and looked over his bank book. He decided against me. He told me a few minutes later that he found he couldn't afford the loan, and that, hating to tell me so, he had begun a note to that effect, and at last decided to speak out. It was that merely started letter, I suppose, that your zealous coadjutors found. 
He paused and looked me square in the face. "'I can see,' I said, "'that you tell the truth. But what you say will only sound too ingenious to be true to a detective prejudiced against you, and you can't corroborate it.' "'Go on,' said Fredericks. "'It is postulated that, after Deneen had begun this note, he decided, as you put it, to speak out, and then called you into his own room, that he there accused you of the theft, that you, having picked up a knife, now known to be his and habitually kept on his desk, in front of which you must have been sitting, began to walk up and down the room as if in nervousness, and that then, when you were either behind him or at his side, you—he was killed. I stopped again, but this time he waved me impatiently to proceed. "'Go on, go on, girl. There's nothing to be said to that.' "'You are, then, as I indicated before, supposed to have gone back for those paste jewels.' "'Ah, there's a weak point.' "'That all depends whether you're in the pen or the jury-box. However, as I was saying, you are supposed, then, to have recovered the paste jewels, and to have made your way first out of the window and then into the cellar. Upstairs I smelled rags burning, just after we'd discovered the body.' I went below and made a noise in the kitchen. I left the room for a match, and when I got back there was plain evidence that someone had come up from below. That person must have been the murderer. Yes, whoever it was. In this way it is supposed you got rid of the blood-stained shirt and waistcoat. I brought only two dress waistcoats along, and they are both in my room at this moment. So, er, they told me. But who knows how many you owned? the laundry people, perhaps. Or that you did not buy a fresh one before leaving New York? That is true. No one can prove it. And now, last, and most important of all, Mr. Fredericks, I meet you on your return from what is supposed to be your trip to hide the jewels. I'll tell you honestly, I thought you were guilty then. And although I know to a certainty that your room was empty an hour before, and that I had been watching and waiting for you for thirty-five minutes, I catch you trying to get into the house in a fashion which you admitted seemed burglarious, and you tell me that you have been gone only a quarter of an hour. That completes the case. I stopped short, and waited for his answer to the last point against him. But it did not come. I saw his shoulders straighten, and his mouth, I fancied in the increasing shadows, tightened, yet he did not reply. What explanation, I persisted, have you to offer for that? None, he said. On that point I shall refuse to speak at all. But good heavens, Mr. Fredericks, I appealed. That is the crux of the whole matter. If you can account for your whereabouts at the time when you were supposed to be burning the bloody clothes and hiding the diamonds, then you couldn't have been the thief and the murderer. But if you can't account for that time, you're lost, for not one of your other explanations will stand for one moment in a court of law. I cannot help that, and it cannot affect my decision. He spoke with a quiet firmness, with an absurd disregard for the seriousness of his plight, and that drove me nearly wild. "'But you must!' I cried. "'You must do this!' He put a kindly hand into mine. "'Thank you, Miss Baird,' he said, with a certain fine grimness and finality. "'But I assure you that on this point I am quite resolved. And when you know me better, as I hope we shall know each other better some day, you will understand that when I make a statement of this sort, I generally abide by it. They may hang me if they choose. Indeed, if their case is as strong as it now seems to be, they probably will, but they won't make me talk about matters that are no affair of theirs. I want, again and again, however, to thank you for all you've done for me, 
and more than all you've done, for the faith you've had in me. He released my hand, and I made reply. I intend, said I, that you shall have more than this to thank me for. I intend to acquit you in spite of yourself. He smiled. I hope so, he responded, but I know it won't be by disregarding my wishes and looking into matter which I don't care to discuss. Thank you again and again, Miss Baird. And here, I think, is our friend Mr. Kemp. I have no doubt that he wants to have a very serious conversation with me, so perhaps we'd better say good-bye at once, for I think it unlikely that we shall meet at dinner. End of chapter 15